Lord, we pray that you would use what you say to us through the Bible to help us know and love you more. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to say it is good to have you guys back here singing with us. It's, it's always just so wonderful. And uh, I forgot to, Scott Dean is on sabbatical until October, and filling in is Tom Reich, and we're grateful to have you here as well. It's also great, I've been gone a couple weeks too, and it's just great to see you again. I, I, this is true, I actually miss you when I'm away, and I couldn't wait to get back, so it's good to see all of you again. Back in the 30s and the 40s, one of the ways that you knew how important an actor was in a film was by whether or not they got top billing in the credits and by how quickly they appeared on screen once the movie had started. So judging by those standards, God is a pretty significant actor in the, in the Bible. In a book that contains almost a million words, God is the fourth word in the Bible, in English, third in Hebrew. This fall, I'm going to look at ten different verses, just single verses, that if we took them seriously, would radically change our lives for the better. And I think these first four words might be the most important. No, Terry did not forget to read the rest of the scripture. That wasn't a mistake, that was deliberate. I think these first four words are maybe the most important of all. Because they answer some of life's biggest questions. The biggest one is, why are we here? What's the point? And I think if we look at this first verse and take it very seriously, in the beginning, God, and live lives, our lives Godward rather than towards something else like self, I think our whole world would change in some dramatic ways. What Genesis 1 is saying is, at the beginning, before anything was created, something has always existed. Now, an atheist would probably say that something was matter and energy. It's always existed, at least in potential form, and one day it all exploded in a big bang, and that's how we got here, just random. Genesis says that God has always existed, and he created us for a purpose. Now, just to be clear, I'm not here to bash science or get caught up in the whole evolution thing. I, that's not what this sermon's about. You know, if, if God chose evolution as the way he created us, I don't think that necessarily contradicts scripture. That's just how he did it. The Bible does not tell us how God created us. It tells us who created us and why. But what it is sure about is whatever the process of creation, it was God who was guiding it. Now, an atheist would say, well, you can't prove that. That's just a leap of faith. But I actually find that a little bit hypocritical because it seems to me that to assert that matter and energy have always existed uncreated is every bit as much a leap of faith as to say that God has always existed uncreated. I mean, grant me this. Either way, it's a whale of a jump, right? Every worldview, even science, starts with a leap of faith. But which leap you take is very significant. Because if there's no God, then we're just random chemicals that happen to come together by chance, no more significant than a rock or some dirt or anything else that's random chemicals. So it doesn't really matter if, if, we're, if we hurt each other or kill each other. I mean, we're just chemicals after all. And we just get older and wear out and then your joints start to hurt and you need reading glasses. And Not that I've experienced any of this lately. <laughs> 
It's merely that they're printing books smaller these days. <laughs> Older people have told me that's how it is. And that it just keeps getting worse until finally you die and that's it. Game over. Man, hand me the Kool-Aid now. That is depressing, right? <laughs> but if there's a God and we were put here on purpose, that means we have a purpose and that means we're sacred. And on balance, I believe the evidence points that there is a creator God. There's just too much design in the universe for there not to be a designer. All kinds of things. Like, for instance, gravity. Gravity has to be so fine-tuned in order to support life that if you had a ruler that stretched across the entire universe and it was divided up into trillions of inches and that ruler represented anywhere the setting for gravity could have been placed. And if you move the setting for gravity just one inch out of trillions, life couldn't exist. If the earth spun any faster, we would spin away from the sun and freeze. Any slower, we'd be brought into the too close to the sun and we'd fry. If the atmosphere was just a little bit thicker or just a little bit thinner, it wouldn't support life. And that's just three of hundreds of coincidences, a.k.a. miracles, that have to occur in order to have life. And the odds of even one of those things happening is one in a billion, let alone all hundreds of things happening. To say that all of that is just random, there's nothing behind that, reminds me of a cartoon that I once saw. In case you can't see it with the light there, it's some little fishes and they're, they're playing baseball under the water, but the wall is, or the ball is up on land and they're kind of stuck in the water wondering what to do. The caption says, great moments in evolution. <laughs> Poses an interesting question, right? If, if all life started in the water, the first animals lived in the water, well, at what point does something that lives in the water and has no lungs suddenly begin to develop lungs? And why? I mean, is that just random? I mean, was there some fish that wanted to impress the ladyfish, so he flopped up on the land and moved his chest up and down and flopped back into the water and said, hey, ladies, mate with me, I'm developing lungs. Right, our kids will become mammals, they'll take over the planet, it'll be awesome. And then did all the other ladyfish say to their husbands, why can't you develop lungs like Fred? You're so unevolved. Even if evolution was the process God used, God must have been guiding it. And not just any God, but I would say the Christian God. Because if he went to all the trouble to make us, I think that means he wants a relationship with us. And if we're going to have a relationship with him, it's not going to be because we get to him. He's too big. He's going to have to come to us. Which is what he does in Jesus. And Christianity is the only religion where God comes to us, not the other way around. In the beginning, God. We were made by God, for God. And the implications of that are huge. Because if God comes first, not us or not just random stuff, then he's the one that should get top billing in our life. He's the one that our lives should center around. So let me ask you this question this morning. Who or what gets top billing in your life? Is it God? Or is it something else? According to where you spend your money, how you spend your time, what subjects occupy your thoughts, who or what is the center of your life? And you see, if we really take these first four words of the Bible seriously and really get that God is first, not God on the margins, not God as an option, not God on the weekends, but center and circumference God, first and last God, then our lives are going to change in at least two ways that I'll talk about briefly. 
For starters, if we take that really seriously, the first thing we realize pretty quickly is it's not about you. This thing called life, it's not about you. There was a best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Life, and that was the first sentence. It's not about you. In the beginning, God, not in the beginning, you. Which means that the point of life is way bigger than ourselves. Way bigger than our comfort, way bigger than our career, way bigger than even our families. The point of life is about knowing God, our creator, and being part of what he's doing in the world. He designed us for a purpose, and we can never know that purpose unless we know our designer. Now, I know that sounds basic. You've probably heard it a thousand times. I don't know about you, but have you done it even once? Do you really live life as if it wasn't about you, but it was about God? I know that I don't. You know, we, it's just part of human nature. We think that the point of life is me. Not you, me. Me, Scott Dudley. That's the point in life. None of you, you're not the point. I'm the point, me. Right? We're like opera singers warming up. Me, 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 me. Right? My comfort, my pleasure, my happiness. I once heard someone remark about someone else. He's a self-made man and he worships his creator. Or think about what parents will sometimes say about their wishes for their children. Oh, I don't care what career my kids have. I just want my kids to be... Is that the point in life? Happy? Because if it is, happy is awfully short-lived, isn't it? As soon as you get the new house or the marriage or whatever it is you think is going to make you happy, it only lasts for a little while and then you need something else. Genesis 1 means that if we live for self, we will be miserable. We'll be like a fish trying to ride a bicycle, doing what we were not designed to do. Now, fortunately, life is filled with all kinds of humbling little reminders that it's not about us, right? I remember once being at a party and a woman who doesn't go to the church, uh, go to any church, she asked me what I did for a living, my least favorite question. And I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, really? Now, is that your full-time job? No, just a couple hours on Sunday. (laughs) Just a reminder, you know, that I am not all that in a slice of pie. It's not about me. The point of life is to enjoy relationship with God and participate in what he's doing in the world. And next week I'm going to talk about how we can really connect with God in a way where we know he's there. Where we experience him in our lives. I recently heard about a man who had come here from Korea. His dream was to make a lot of money, which he did. But then he experienced what everyone experiences when they get what they want. It wasn't enough. And there was still something missing. So he read that book, The Purpose Driven Life. And he began to sense that God had an assignment for him. So he prayed the most dangerous prayer that you never should pray, God, use me. Well, out of that, he started to correspond with a church back in Korea that he knew about, and, and the woman he was corresponding with at that church told him about the country of Kurdistan and all the needs in that country. So he prayed about it, and now he's teaching there and talking about Jesus in a country where just a few years ago you couldn't even mention God. And now suddenly for him, life is an adventure, and it feels rich and exhilarating because it's not about him. He's connected to God in a way he's never been before, and he's doing, he's participating with what God is doing in the world. Here's how he sums up his life. He says, I came to the U.S. to realize the American dream, but I was given God's dream for my life instead. 
And just as a P.S. to this story, the woman he corresponded with at that church was really drawn to his love for God, and he was attracted to her heart for God, and so they agreed to meet, and they fell in love, and, and now they're married. And so his friends joke with him that he not only got a purpose-driven life, but he got a purpose-driven wife as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> life is better when it's not about me. It gets us out of ourselves, and there is no freedom more glorious than freedom from self. Which brings me to the other way our lives will change if we take this verse seriously. We'll have peace and joy knowing that God is bigger than anything we face. And there's kind of a paradox here, isn't there? When we focus on God instead of self, life actually gets better for self. It's kind of a paradox, but it's true. Because when we focus on God, we realize that he's bigger than anything we face. Do you know that there are more suns in the universe than there are grains of sand on the entire earth? That's how many suns there are. And maybe probably more. That's how big God is. He created that all. And in comparison to that, our successes, our problems, our happiness, our worries, all the things that absorb us, that, that get us kind of all freaked out, all of those things that make us miserable, they pale in comparison to who God is. They grow strangely dim, in the words of the old hymn, when we turn our eyes on Jesus. Because he's just bigger. The very next verse in Genesis, had Terry kept reading, says that before creation, the earth was formless and void. And the Hebrew phrase for that is tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu. And that's not a new tofu dish. It's Hebrew. And I think it sounds kind of scary, right? Tohu vavohu. That, that, that can't be a good thing, right? Loosely translated, it means darkness, emptiness, scary, scary nothing everywhere. But what does God do with it? He fills that tohu vavohu with light and with life. And if God can do that in the universe, well then what can he do with the tohu vavohu in your life? Right? Is, is there darkness in your life? He can bring light. Is there chaos in your world? He can bring order. Do you feel formless and void, having a lot of what you want but being bored with it? Are you caught up in yourself, enamored of your success but afraid to lose it or frantically striving for success? God can fill us up with stuff that is much bigger, much more meaningful, much more life-giving than any of that because he's just bigger. Whatever tohu vavohu you face, God is bigger. And those other things pale in comparison when we fix our eyes on him. What a relief. This June, one of the students I had in my college group in California was killed in a car accident. Her name was Amy, and she was only 25, and she was one of my favorite students in that college group. After she died, a local newspaper ran an article about her, and the first paragraph started this way. It said she scored 1,100 on the SAT when she was only 11, got her master's degree from Stanford at 21, and last year became the youngest senior consultant ever at Edgar Dunn Company. Now, for those of us who knew Amy, that was a weird way to start that article. Because those things were impressive, but, but what was really impressive about Amy was the way Jesus got top billing in her life. I mean, really in unique ways that you don't see in a lot of other people. I mean, even her non-Christian friends would always say how much joy Amy seemed to have and how much life she always seemed to have. When they had a question, they'd go to her first because she was so loving toward them. She was always bringing banana bread or into the office or sending cookies to a friend just to let them know that they mattered to her. I cannot think of a time 
when I saw Amy with anything other than a smile on her face. And she served in all kinds of ways, in orphanages, tutored, all kinds of things. She was a very joy-filled person. Whenever I was giving a talk at the college group and it wasn't going so well, and students were yawning and falling asleep, I'd, I'd scan the crowd, crowd for Amy. Because there she'd be smiling and nodding just as if I was making sense. No. <laughs> I'm with you, Scott. Don't know what you're saying, but I'm with you. Well, I flew to California for her memorial. 1,300 people came from all over the country. That's how many lives she touched. And at her memorial, her mother spoke, her father spoke, even her husband spoke. And even though there was a lot of grief, they also talked about having joy and peace and hope because of who Amy was, but also because each one of them said that God was very real and very present to them even in that tragedy. Greg Milliken, our youth pastor here, he also spoke because he knew Amy and her husband from his days in California. And before we left for the memorial, I asked Greg what he was going to say. He said, I don't know, but I know this for sure. The one thing Amy would have wanted was for someone to stand up and speak the name Jesus. And that's for sure. Because center and circumference for Amy was always Jesus. Right after she died, one of Amy's friends named Christina found an old email that Amy had written to her three years earlier when Christina had lost a friend in a car crash. And this is what Amy said back then. Christina, I'm so sorry that this truly awful thing has happened. And I'm sure God is grieving your friend's loss as well. I'll call you tonight to talk more, but here are some first thoughts. God didn't want this to happen either. It's truly sad, and you're allowed to be sad and angry, but know that it's a result of us living in a fallen world. So be angry at the brokenness all around us. Though God doesn't mind if you get angry with him, people do it in the Bible all the time. Also, an uplifting thought, though a toughie in our Western culture that doesn't think much about life after death. Your friend is having a great party, and he's meeting his Heavenly Father. It's for his family that I grieve since they have to stay here without him. But honestly, picturing your friend in heaven. And C.S. Lewis has some absolutely breathtaking descriptions of it. No harps, no angels, just fullness, realness, completeness of being in heaven. That thought, though difficult, must bring a brief smile to your heart. And you have such a great heart, Christina. The Bible says our hearts should break at what makes God's heart break. And in this instance, you definitely are in line with that. I'll be praying that you get through this mourning process and for your friend's family. And I'll give you a call tonight. Amy. You know, those words could sound trite or cliche, but not from Amy. Because she lived them. And she died fully believing them. Her whole life bent toward God. And because of that, she had this amazing joy that was contagious, and she made a big difference in 25 short years. And in that email she wrote to her friend three years ago, it was as if, even still, Amy was reaching out from beyond even death, saying to her friends and family, it's all right, we're having a party up here. I am with my Heavenly Father, the one towards whom my whole life has veered. And soon and very soon, you will be here too, and this awful, painful thing we call the world will be redeemed until there will be no more tears, be no more sorrow, just joy. When I got back from the memorial, my wife asked me how it was, and I said only two words, hope and joy. Because in spite of the grief, God was so real in Amy's life, and for her friends and family, that even in that tragic time, they found hope and joy in God. Amy wasn't perfect. She had her flaws. 
But Amy got that it wasn't about her, it was about God. And she did what God asked her to do, even when it was hard, knowing it would be better. And her life was way, in her life, God was way bigger than anything else. God was bigger than her SAT scores. God was bigger than her Stanford degree. God was bigger than her successes. And God was bigger, way bigger than her death. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Who gets top billing in your life? This week, will you put God first? Talk to him, obey him, and find peace and joy knowing that he's bigger than anything you face. The poet John Keats wrote a famous poem called Ode on a Grecian Urn. The last line says, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that's all you know on earth and all you need to know. When I taught, I used to read that to my students and they'd always say, wow, deep man, Woo, that's really deep. Not really, it's a poem about a vase, okay? I mean, <laughs> how deep can it go? Here's what you really need to know. Here's what will really give you joy. Here's what's going to change your life. In the beginning, God. Lord, help us fix our attention on you, for our hearts are prone to wander. Help us look at you and only you, so the things of this earth, our successes, our failures, our joys, our problems, all of those things, grow strangely dim in the light of who you are. And we will give you the praise. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.